welcome to the e-commerce fuel podcast the show dedicated to helping high six and seven figure entrepreneurs build amazing online companies and incredible lives i'm your host and fellow e-commerce entrepreneur andrew uderi Hey guys, it's Andrew here and welcome to the e-commerce field podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in to the show. Today on the show, going back and doing a round of your questions, reader questions from the blog and online, just doing a random grab bag of uh, questions we thought were interesting to tackle and joining me to really answer all these. The tough ones. The tough ones. I'm going to take all the softballs, Drew, and, and hand you off all the really <laughs> the ones I have been stressing out about, the men. <laughs> all the hard answers, Mr. Sanaki. How you doing, sir? Good. How are you? Good. Good. Drew, things in New York well? Things in New York are great. It's getting warmer and spring's just around the corner. And you recently sold Karma Loop, correct? We did. I did not. We did. But yeah, we that was a quick turnaround. We bought it out of bankruptcy last summer and just sold it a week ago to a sneaker retailer on the West Coast. That's fantastic. Congratulations, sir. Thanks. It was a great chance to really try out a lot of the things that I preach on my blog and they work. So it was a good case study. Yeah, well, you mentioned that a lot of the tactics and things you talked about at your talk at ECF Live, which will link, well, it's available to all e-commerce field members in the community. But a lot of the things from that talk are the things you use to really turn that retailer around. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the first things I did was I talk a lot about figuring out who your best customers are and then building the business around that group of customers. And I spent about a month doing that at Karma Loop. And once I sort of figured out who that group was, the next step was really developing the marketing campaigns that kept those customers around, acquired more of them and kept them buying. So that took about a, you know, a year to implement and it worked. We brought it from a money losing company month over month, losing hundreds of thousands of dollars to about break even. And that's when we sold it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations, sir. That's a pretty big accomplishment. Nice little cap in the feather. That's really cool. Thanks. All right, sir. Should we get into some questions? Let's do it. So the first question we've got is from Matt. And Matt says, hey, guys, listen to the podcast and love it. I'm looking at starting a store with beauty and face care products similar to Nurture My Body, which is Bill's store, but in a different vertical. If you were starting a business like this, would you immediately try to set things up with a Chinese supplier and have them develop formulas for you? Or would you do everything small in-house to perfect the formulas first? A little stuck on which avenue is the best to try and pursue. Drew, what are your thoughts? I don't really know a lot about this kind of production, but it seems like you'd want to do something like this domestically just to kind of figure out the formulation before you deal with sourcing anything from overseas. You know, there's a million qualifiers you put on that. If you're experienced in sourcing things from China, then go right ahead. But I would probably want to operate at break even or even at a loss for a while while I dialed in the formula. Yeah, agreed. I just got done kind of prototyping a product that we had made. And the way we did it was we designed it in the States, sent it to China to have them make a sample, sent the sample back. And we went through probably three or four prototypes. And it took six plus months before we could get to a production run. And in retrospect, I really wish I would have paid more upfront to work with a local prototype manufacturer in the US where I could have iterated much more quickly. And then once I had what worked, gone ahead and sent that over to China for production because just the lag time between sending them my revisions and getting the sample, it just probably stretched out the process two or three times as long as it could have been. So I think in-house would probably be the way to go. Yeah. And that's a, and you're talking about a physical product in your case that is not, well, I mean, he's talking about skin cream, which I would think so many other things could go wrong from a health perspective. Yeah, agreed. Right? Like, ah, the acid's burning my <laughs> skin. You know, and you don't <laughs> you know, like call 
back to China to try to get like, take the acid out. <laughs> Yeah. Any kind of ingestibles or skin creams. I know you can, you know, again, this isn't a market I know anything about. Bill would be able to speak to this much better than either of us, but anything you put on your body or ingest, that just sounds terrifying. I wouldn't be interested in getting into that. Right. Next question is from Brent. Brent says, I'm semi-retired from the corporate domain and looking for a viable e-commerce opportunity. I was hoping you might point out some trustworthy sources and perhaps a process for uncovering such a pipeline of sites or businesses to buy. I'm perusing the typical channels, Flippa, Biz by Sell, Acquisitions Direct, and some more, but would be interested to know your input on navigating the due diligence of the search phase. Are these channels for real? And would you recommend seeking out a personal business broker? Thanks. Drew, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, he's really the big things are, what are the best channels to look for deals and thoughts on due diligence? I applaud Brent for considering buying instead of building, because when you buy a company, you take a lot of the risk out of the equation. You buy something that already has customers, already has a presence. Brent will not have to figure out a lot of the basics that you would have to do if you were starting from scratch, right? So that's all good. I would probably, for your first purchase, want to purchase a very simple business, a very simple e-commerce business. And, you know, Flippa is like the Wild West and probably too small. I mean, what is his goal to just get some spending money or is this something that, you know, he wants to retire on? And also what is, you know, what is he retiring from? Is it a job where he knows marketing or operations, or is it a job where he has nothing to do with e-commerce and he's going to be starting from scratch? Those are all sort of important things to think about. Yeah. And in terms of the channels, are they for real? Like Drew, like you mentioned, Flippit has a, I mean, there's good stuff in there, but there's a lot of noise and a lot of junk. Biz by Sell in my limited experience has some listings that you can definitely check out. Brokers like FE International uh, or Quiet Light, those are a couple of reputable places that they'll definitely go through and, and do some diligence so that, you know, not going to be listing lemons for sale that are just blatantly fraudulent. But at the same time, like most businesses are going to have some warts and some issues, even the best ones. And the diligence process, you can't trust a broker to do that. So, you know, you ask, should you seek out a broker? Yeah, that can help. You can get some good deal flow that way. But you just got to realize great brokers, they're incentivized when a deal goes through. So thinking through how they're compensated and what their personal incentives are and realizing that you've got to do the diligence yourself. I mean, you can't depend on a broker to clear those things for you. And I think knowing where to look and what issues to look for, that takes time. And so, you know, like you said, Drew, I would probably, if you are going to get into it, try to buy one first, get some industry experience first before you scale up and really try to buy something that if you don't do the diligence right, you could kind of regret having purchased. Yep. The next question is from Rainier. I have found a bricks and mortar health shop, which has a limited online presence, but really no real online shop with an older non-tech savvy owner. My idea is to propose a JV joint venture where I would set up a proper web shop and do extensive content and email marketing. The sticking point for me is how should I go about structuring such a venture? One of the possibilities I was thinking about is running the online shop separately and using the existing shop almost as like a dropshipping supplier. Do you know of anyone that's done something similar? And if so, what kind of structure did they use? So, I mean, she's really looking to partner up with someone who's got a brick and mortar shop and take them online and get a percentage of the profits. Drew, you have any experience with this or any thoughts? It's very common. You know, I see it a lot in the media space where there's a magazine property or a, a media property, a content property, and they want to diversify into e-commerce, but they don't really have the chops internally to do it. So they license out their brand. That might be a licensing fee. I've also seen someone like Rainier come in and charge like a percentage of the upside 
or a percentage through that channel. So yeah, I think they're pretty common and it really all comes down to what you can negotiate. And there are a couple different levers. There's, you know, there could be a monthly flat fee with a percentage of the upside, or you could structure it like you proposed as a separate store where you kind of make everything through that separate store. But, you know, what does the brick and mortar health shop really make in that case? I think they'd probably want to have some share in that upside. But I don't know, Andrew, do you have any experience with it? I don't have any personal experience. I know I've talked to a handful of people who have done this and sometimes even in the case where they'll do it, it's kind of one of the cores of their business model. So I think it can be done. I think the the tricky part is, yeah, setting up a comp structure that works well. I think you either need to, A, get compensated really well if you're not going to be getting a big chunk of the sales. And if you are getting a big chunk of the sales, you need to set up a pretty transparent, very clear agreement that protects you in the future because I could see what could happen potentially is the brick and mortar owner, they say, oh yeah, I'll give you you know 20% of the sales you know, what's it to us? We're not doing anything on that channel anyway right now. It's only upside. But then if you work your tail off for six months, 12 months, two years, you really build up a presence online. All of a sudden, if that becomes a major channel for them, that store owner might start thinking, oh, why am I every month I'm paying a huge percentage out to this person who you earned it because you did the work up front, but there could be some resentment there. So I think, you know, making sure you have pretty clear expectations about how things look long term would be really important. Right, right. Next question is from Tom. Tom says, I love listening to the podcast. I've been listening to This Week in Startups for four years now and find yours as informative, if not more so, and useful from a practitioner perspective. Uh, Thanks, Tom. That's awesome. Quick question. What was the best way to go about incorporating your business? What service, if any, did you use? Legal Zoom, something else? Please let me know. Keep up the good work. I'll take a quick stab at this one, Drew. So personally for me, and I think it varies by state, but it was really incredibly easy in Montana to incorporate really cheap too. It was like 115 bucks. It took like, you know, 20 minutes to file as an LLC and the fees were pretty low. So personally, I just did it straight through my, you know, department through the state. I can't remember what the Department of Commerce or something like that, but just did it directly and it worked out fine. Is that how you have set your business up legally? Did you use one of those intermediary services? I didn't, only because New York's a little bit more complicated. You've got to write a press release and publish it in a paper and just do all this weird stuff. But I went with my accountant who just kind of did it as a service. Yeah. And for me, I think the total fees were, again, it varies by state, but I spent you know maybe $200 at the end of the day all in. Do you remember what the fee was for setting up your business? Probably one to $2,000. Okay. I think it depends where you're at, Tom, in terms of how complex it is. Next question is from Will. Will says, I'm a big fan of the podcast and found them to be very helpful. Thank you. I run a whiskey brand and we've recently begun selling bottles of product through our website. Here's the complication. Only licensed liquor stores can fulfill the orders. And so there's a need for a third party, i.e. a third party liquor store to control everything from the purchase now button all the way through the purchasing funnel to fulfillment. The problem with that is that when someone clicks purchase, it takes them off the site. So it looks like to the website analytics that they're exiting or bouncing. Is there anything I can do about this so I can better track my customers? All of my third-party liquor sites that fulfill use Shopify. I'm trying to optimize my e-commerce site, but it's not easy to do with the analytics spread across multiple domains. And fortunately, we've got an analytics expert and a numbers man on the show. Drew, what do you think about that? I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of an unorthodox setup here, but thoughts for tracking conversions when people leave a domain and go to another one? Is that possible or does he just have a model that's going to make things really difficult to track? It's going to be tough using Google Analytics's e-commerce tracking. You could always track, you know, a click on the purchase button and set a value to that as a goal, right? Track it as an event or something in Google Analytics, but you're not gaining access to the full repertoire of e-commerce functionality in GA. 
Another thing would be, is there any way you could get that customer to kind of come back to your site after they've checked out on the third-party site? Could they come back to your site on sort of a checkout success page or a thank you page? And if that's the case, then yes, you can e-commerce track, put the tracking on your own page. That would be the preferred route. Then you can figure analytics such that it doesn't count that when you go off-site and come back on-site. And a lot of Shopify stores, we have to do this just because Shopify has their own branded checkout that when you check off you know, if you're using the basic program, when you check out in Shopify, you go through their cart and you don't want that to show up as a third party or a refer or something like that. You can do a workaround as long as they come back to your site at the end. So you can just really redirect them for that liquor store, that third party, have him, when they complete the transaction, send them back to the original referring site. You can set up your analytics to count that as the conversion guy. Right. Hope that's helpful, Will. Next question is from Scott. Scott says, how much did you save as a cash cushion before leaving your old job? How many months of expenses did that represent? I'm on the verge of jumping ship and want to know about how much of a safety cushion to have so I can compare it to someone who's actually done it. Drew, are you comfortable answering that question? I don't know, maybe six months, which I just kind of had as an emergency fund back when I started my job. Uh, sorry, my business. Six months. I probably had a couple of years in the bank, but largely because I was a single guy who only had to pay for you know rent and you know beer and cheap takeout food. <laughs> so. Yeah, it was like it was very different when I was started my business in my early thirties or late twenties, whatever it was, versus now in my early forties. Now I would I need income to provide for my family. So I'd want, I'd probably want a year in the bank. I'd be more open to raising money now, doing something where I could pay myself earlier in the process. Agreed. I think a year is a good number. Six months would probably be a little bit less for me because for me, it took me about a year to build up the business to get to a point where it was meaningfully replacing the income I had lost. And I think that's probably a best case scenario. So for me, you know, Scott, I would look at at least a year's worth of living expenses. If you're able to pair those back, of course, you can make your runway last longer, but that's where I would be comfortable with. And we've got an episode, I think Bill and I did an episode on knowing when it's time, you know, when to quit your job and move into your business. And we'll link up to that in the show notes for this. All right. The last question comes from Tim and Tim says, I wanted to ask your advice on how to tackle product information and copywriting for large inventories. I'm trying to stick with a small niche and maintain roughly about a thousand SKUs to start with. But in order to compete, I need great product information. Not to mention I want great product details throughout. But how do you tackle this when you have an inventory of this size that's this big and possibly growing as you continue down the road? I know you must have had similar obstacles when setting up your first store, Right Channel Radios. And I'll talk to Right Channel in just a minute. But Drew, I mean, you just got done selling Karma Loop. How many SKUs did you guys have over there? Maybe 100,000. Yeah, 100,000, you know, so. Yeah, in my store, I think we had 50. You just got to use the 80-20 rule and realize that you know, at any time, only 20% of your products are sort of the ones that matter. You know, they're the ones that are being looked at. It's easy to go into Google Analytics and go under, I think it's behavior to landing pages or to content. And just, you'll see how many pages are actually being looked at, you know, how many products are actually selling and start there, start at the top. You aspire to, you know, have your whole catalog embody your brand, but sometimes it's not just possible. We hired very good copywriters and we focused them on the top products. And then the other thing you can do, it really depends on what you sell, but when you get into 50 or 100,000 SKUs, start to think more about customer-created content. And it can be customer-submitted images or product reviews, but kind of moving those dynamically higher on the page, and it relieves you a little bit of producing original content for every product. 
Yeah, I think as independent merchants, especially if we're not enormous, it's I think it's really difficult to pull this off if you have such a large catalog. And I would almost make that. I mean, obviously, you know, Tim doesn't sound like you. You're kind of already there. But if you're thinking about getting into a new business or how to expand your current one, I think it makes a lot of sense to keep your SKU count really small. Because I mean, at Karma Loop, how many copywriters or what kind of marketing size team did you guys have, Drew? Oh, it was still just a handful of people. Three, four, three. Oh, okay. Wow, wow, that's a, that's crazy. That's a that's a lot of products for three people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually, products probably fell in more under merchandising. So that was again another five people. But still, that's like five people that can focus on that versus Tim and I'm not sure how big your business is. But you know, let's say it's just even if you just got one person dedicated to that, that's you know a lot for them to do. And so yeah, for us, like when we did our redesign for Right Channel Radios, when we were going through the copywriting, Laura did a lot of that copywriting. But we went through and prioritized how much time to spend based on what our best sellers were. And that was only, you know, we only had 300, 400 ish SKUs and we still had to prioritize. So I think, yeah, you, you hit it right on, Drew. If you can uh, do the 80 20 rule, if you can keep your, your SKU count as low as possible, I think the quality over quantity, especially for small merchants, is, yeah, is the way to go. Right. Drew, that's it, sir. That's all we got for, for questions. It's too bad. Yeah. I could keep going. Do you mind if I ask you like maybe a couple personal <laughs> questions here? <laughs> yeah, go for on, it. On the record? Let's do it. <laughs> I can't think of anything adequately embarrassing enough. I'll have to come back. And maybe next podcast. <laughs> Drew Sanaki from nerdmarketing.com. Drew, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I'm always appreciating being here, Andrew. And if you'd like to ask a question, love to hear from you. You can reach out. Ecommercefuel.com forward slash contact is the best way to submit your questions. Or you can uh, hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Udarian, Y-O-U-D-E-R-I-A-N. Drew, are you just at Drew Sanaki? At Drew Sanaki at Drew Sanaki. S-A-N-O-C-K-I. Perfect. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. Want to connect with and learn from other proven e-commerce entrepreneurs? Join us in the e-commerce fuel private community. It's our tight-knit vetted group for store owners with at least a quarter million dollars in annual sales. You can learn more and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com. Thanks so much to our podcast producer, Laura Serena, for all of her hard work in making this show possible. And to you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. That'll do it for this week, but looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.